0: Coming out of Luke chapter five, where Blake had us last week, uh, yeah, it had begun with the Pharisees, and they had started their attack with Jesus by beginning to criticize his disciples. It it started with uh, an attack on a conversation around fasting, and they said, "Hey, what's with your disciples, Jesus? Like we see the disciples of John the Baptist, and what he taught, and we know what we practice, and." Your disciples aren't fasting. Like, what's the deal? These guys are known more for their eating and their drinking and their hanging out with you than they are for their fasting. And, and Jesus told the Pharisees at the end of, of Luke chapter 5, he said, look, you don't make uh, wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them. And we know this, like, throughout the Gospels, Jesus did teach on fasting it's just that his teaching about fasting was a lot different from that of what the pharisees believed and practiced and and taught when the pharisees were fasting they made a show of it like that's that's how they operated it was you know they sought to display their righteousness so everyone would go wow look at how pious those men are and look at their commitment to the Lord and so in fact they would they would dress to give up the idea that they were fasting you know some say they would actually put dirt on their face to communicate that they were fasting and they'd make sure that they just communicated how hungry they were to you uh, to let you know how righteous they were but Jesus taught this he said this that your fasting should be like your giving It's not about public displays of righteousness. It's about your relationship with the Lord, not to put a show on for men. So when Jesus spoke about giving, he said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And fasting, it was like the same sort of principle. It was a private matter. It is to be a private matter between yourselves and God. And these are beautiful ways like giving or or prayer or fasting. Jesus said they happen in private. They're not about public displays of self and self-righteousness. And so when the Pharisees questioned Jesus on this, he told them a parable. At the end of Luke chapter 5, he said this, look it, no one tears off a, a piece of clothing off a new garment and then sews it onto an old garment because you'll destroy both the new and the old, the you'll have a hole in your new garment, which, you know, my kids pay for jeans like that. (laughs) And and then, you know, it'll shrink on your old garment and both pieces of clothing will be ruined. And so he went on to say this. Yeah, actually, here's another illustration. No one takes new wine and puts it in an old wineskin because an old wineskin has lost its elasticity. And the new wine is going to burst the skin and and the wine will be ruined and the wineskin will be ruined. No new wine goes into new wineskins. And Jesus, as we're coming to chapter six, just drove home to the Pharisees. Look at, I am here to do a new work, something that will be entirely new, something that is not going to serve you and your traditions, but will be a work of God's spirit. So in the first conflict with the disciples, or with Jesus, sorry, the Pharisees criticized his disciples. And Luke chapter 6 opens with a recounting of the next two conflicts that Jesus had with these Pharisees. If they were going to corner this Jesus fellow, they're going to have to up their game. So they up their game. So let's check it out. Verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So this happened on the Sabbath. We we read this the disciples are walking through a through a field and while they were walking they they plucked some heads of grain. They took those heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands to separate the grain from the chaff and then they had, you know, a nice little chewy snack while they're going through the field. And and essentially they were threshing grain by separating the the grain from the chaff and it was an entirely legal thing for them to do by Jewish law when they're walking through a field. In fact, I remember one of our trips to Israel, we were in the north and we were admiring the fruit trees and it's just amazing when you go there. And we were looking at the orange groves. We were up in the north and we're commenting as we were driving down the road in the bus and the tour guide says, stop the bus. And the bus pulled over onto the side of the road. He hopped out. He went into the orange grove. He took an orange off the tree, got back in the bus, pulled out his knife, started carving up the orange and handing out wedges to us who were on the bus. And he got to me and and I said, what's the deal, man? You can do that? Like just pull over on the side of the road and like go into someone's orange grove and take a piece of fruit off the tree? And he said, yeah, you're in Israel, man. This is entirely legal. It's like nothing wrong with this. You You can't go into the orange grove with a bucket and fill the bucket. But you know, if you're traveling on the road and you're going to take one thing like that, it's totally legal. This is exactly what the disciples were doing. It was allowed within the law, nothing wrong whatsoever. The problem for the Pharisees was this, it was the Sabbath. And by threshing grain, they saw this as working on the day that the Lord had ordained for rest. See, a common belief among the Pharisees was this, that the Messiah... They didn't realize they're dealing with him already, Jesus. The Messiah would never come until Israel perfectly kept the Sabbath. Their own time of exile as a nation, their their years of captivity in Babylon was connected to their abuse of Sabbath law. So, So the length to which they went to ensure that the Sabbath was kept was, I would call, ridiculous. The rules reached far and deep into everyone's life, and the rules had become ridiculous. You know, every time I read this, I wonder, I'm sure you do too, well, what were the Pharisees doing? I mean, like, what were they doing? What Sabbath laws were they breaking? Well, they were, you know, playing detectives, trying to bust Jesus and his disciples and trap them. Whatever they were up to, when they saw the disciples of Jesus threshing on the Sabbath, this was their opportunity to play the heavy. And Jesus' response is great. I I think this, you know, I think Jesus had a lot of fun with these Pharisees. You know, in these conflicts, I bet there was a lot of times a smirk on his face because he knew he was getting the better of them. He wasn't angry. He was, you know, having some fun exposing their hypocrisy. So basically, he responds to them by saying this, you know, I think the problem is you don't know the word of God very well. You don't know the Scriptures. Now, to throw that back in the face of a Pharisee, i got to tell you, sis, the Pharisees knew the Word of God. They knew it. In fact, they say this about the Pharisees, that the Pharisees studied the Word so much that one of the things they knew was like how many times every letter was in the Scripture. And if it was a specific letter, they knew exactly where the middle one was In all of Scripture, you know, they knew, turn right here and you'll get the exact middle. I mean, these guys knew the Word of God. The problem was right here, right? This is all it was. It was full of head knowledge. Their heads were full of the Scriptures, but they had reduced God's Word down to rituals, down to uh, rules, down to religion, and it was missing the relational heart, transformational power in their lives. They had outward conformity without inner transformation. That's the thing about the Pharisees. We know this, right? I mean, they could dress up and play the part on the outside, but inside their lives were like tombs. There was death in there. Outer conformity, but no transformation of heart. So Jesus says to them, well, surely you've read about David, right? You know, surely you read what David did. He went to the house of God, took the bread of presence, which was only for priests, and he gave it to his companions and they ate the bread. The bread of presence is also called, we call it the show bread, right? This was the bread that the priest would er, every day in the temple present to the Lord. It was a reminder of his presence. It was a reminder of his provision during the wilderness wanderings. The the bread was daily presented in the temple, uh, demonstrating God's uh, and reminding God's people of his faithful provision and presence. And Jesus says, haven't you read what David did? You know, he was fighting for the people of God and he and his men could not do so on empty stomachs. They ran out of food and so they didn't hesitate to go to the house of God For something to eat. So, what's Jesus implying? Well, he's saying this You Pharisees, you can't argue with what David did because he was your greatest king. He was the standard by which all other kings are measured, and he did this and he did it for his men. And I think Jesus was implying this I am the son of David. The son promised to David who would be seated on the throne of Israel forever, Jesus was implying that he had every right to decide what to do with consecrated bread, so to speak. And Jesus refers to himself here amazingly by two titles, the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man has two meanings. Uh, It's simply a, uh, a reference, firstly, to human beings to say someone is a son of man. just means this, if your father was a man that would make you a son of man, you know, by default, or a daughter of man. (laughs) Jesus called himself son of man, but there is a reference in the book of Daniel where the title, son of man, means something entirely different because Daniel prophesied that the time would come when the son of man would come on the clouds of heaven and he would establish the kingdom of God, and Jesus applied this to himself. We know this, that later in the gospel accounts, when his authority was challenged, he said this, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he said so, speaking, referring to himself. This is a a reference from Daniel and that Jesus gives in regards to his second coming, because we know this, that Jesus' first coming wasn't on the clouds. He came and was born in a manger in Bethlehem, and When we read in in the book of Acts, when Jesus was ascending into heaven after his resurrection, the disciples stood there staring into the sky and two angels appeared to them. He ascended into the clouds, the scripture says. And two angels appeared to the disciples and said that his return would be in the same manner, that he would come on the clouds. And so Jesus saw in saw himself in the prophecy of Daniel and he applied the title son of man to himself in both of its meanings. He also called himself Lord of the Sabbath, meaning this, that he had the right to do whatever he wanted on the Sabbath. And if these Pharisees had understood this, they actually could have asked him, you know, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, you're the Lord of the Sabbath. How can I honor you? On this day, but instead, what they did was heaped ridiculous rules on the Sabbath, and they forgot that the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. I mean, we talked about this recently on a Wednesday night. It was a fun discussion. We've just gone through our series on the Ten Commandments on Wednesday nights, and if you have questions about the, the fourth command to keep the Sabbath, I'd actually encourage you to go check out that teaching on the Sermon Archive. We, we it, yeah, it's. It was fun. It was interesting to discuss. So Jesus said, I'm son of man and Lord of the Sabbath. Now check this out, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. So, so the Pharisees had ill intent. We read this right away. They were hunting for reasons to bring accusations against Jesus. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come stand here. And he rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at the mall, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, you know, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, I mean, you knew where to find Jesus when a Sabbath came. The Pharisees knew where to find him. He would be at the synagogue. It was his custom. That's where he would be found. And they were looking for a way to trap him. We're not told, you almost wonder, I wonder if they planted this guy there, you know, the guy with the withered hand, put him front and center. I mean, make sure Jesus had no choice but to deal with this situation in front of him and they could have him trapped. But the text tells us something amazing to me, a a detail that the Holy Spirit includes for us. It says this, that Jesus knew their thoughts. Isn't that crazy? He knew what they were thinking. He knew their thoughts. And the thing that's amazing about that to me is this. It means that Jesus knows my thoughts. And Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts. That's one of the things that the gospels lead you to believe about King Jesus. He knows your thoughts. You know, I have to say a lot of times, I wouldn't want you to know my thoughts. (laughs) You know, if I told you next week you're going to come to church and we're, we're going to share your thoughts to everybody else, I, there'd be nobody here next week, right? You know, we say a penny for our thoughts. I said, no, a million dollars for my thoughts, okay? Jesus knows your thoughts. And this is where there was a disconnect for the Pharisees. And, and it allowed them to, lead, to live this life that, that they could separate what was going on on the inside from what was happening on the outside of their lives, to separate the inner and the outer, as Jesus said in other places about them. You, your life is like a whitewashed tomb, but really, you're full of death. You can whitewash the out. Uh, you can whitewash, but. You know, he pointed, he said, make a big scene out of your tithing, pray long, out loud, public prayers, fast, look haggard, dress the part as if you're starving to death because of your piety. But inside, it doesn't matter because your heart is like a tomb. Jesus knows your thoughts. And he taught that his righteousness, that the righteousness of God and his kingdom has to be applied to the inside of your life. The heart needs to be cleansed. The heart needs to be purified. The thoughts are to be taken captive and surrendered to Christ. Jesus said, You can't have lust in your heart and say you're not an adulterer. You can't have anger in your heart towards your brother and not disconnect that from the spirit of murder. These things form on the inside of your life, in your heart and in your mind before they ever manifest on the outside. And Jesus did not come to conform us to an outside standard of religion. He came to transform our hearts and lives so that we would be righteous on the inside. Thank Him for that. To change our hearts. To transform our thinking. I thought about that. I mean, to change the thinking of this man and to change this heart, it takes the power of the gospel, doesn't it? It takes the power of God. It takes the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash a man or woman clean from their sin. And so we can't forget as we read the gospels that Jesus knows what we think. He knows what's in our hearts. And his righteousness has to be applied to our minds. His righteousness has to be applied to our hearts. His righteousness has to be applied to the, the thoughts of our, of our heart, to the thinking of our minds. So, so Jesus confronts them and he has the man with the withered hand stand up before them in the synagogue and he asks a question. I ask you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And just silence comes over. I love how it just says, you know, he, he looked around, kind of gives us that sense that he waited. I wonder how long that pause was. And then he told the man, stretch out your hand. A man couldn't stretch out his hand. He couldn't. His hand was withered text is clear to tell us that it's His right hand. I mean, the bulk of us are right-handed, not many left-handers. I imagine it was His dominant hand. Stretch out your hand. And in the words of Jesus, in the Word of God was the enabling to do it, was the power to do it. The truth is Seen throughout the word of God, that it's in God's word is the power to do the impossible for the one who will be obedient to the word. His word is his enabling. Just like Peter, you know, we saw this last week, out fishing all night with him and his buddies. They come back, they've got nothing. And Jesus says, Take your boat, put it out into the deep, and let down the nets. Peter's like, We fished all night but at your word. But at your word, we will put out to the deep and cast our net. And they caught so many fish that their nets were breaking and they had to call for backup. And at his word, the man with the withered hand stretched it out and he was healed. I read this and I I think this, a key point, I'm going to give it to you, it's on the screen, a key point of this whole lesson is this, is that it's like religious observance comes second to, to human need. And Jesus said, what's, what's lawful, to do good on the Sabbath? Yeah, reach out and help people, serve one another. And the text tells us that the Pharisees were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. I go, wow, look at these guys. Verse 12, it says this, in these days, He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All night prayer meeting. Wow, isn't that amazing? I think about, you know, why Jesus would take a whole night to spend in prayer. It's like, there's lots of reasons. I mean, first of all, just to connect with his Father in heaven and hear his voice. But opposition was also beginning to to grow for him. He needed the Father's strength. He needed the Father's guidance. And as we're about to read, he was about to choose twelve. Choose twelve to be apostles. He had, Jesus had many, many disciples. The text tells us a disciple is a is a follower, is a learner. But out of his disciples, those who followed him, he chose twelve to be apostles. An apostle is someone specially chosen to be a messenger and they are sent with a special message for others to hear. And Jesus chose 12 apostles, just like Israel had 12 tribes. And the significance is this, that Jesus is laying the foundation for something new, something that he is going to build, his church. And he chose 12 apostles, 12 men. One of the 12 would betray him. And so he needed time in the Father's presence for this selection. Let's read what happens here. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who's called Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These men were called uh, for three things. This is going to come up on your screen. This is from Mark chapter 3. They were called to be with Jesus. They were called to learn from him. And they were called to go out and represent him. Of these 12 men, 11 of them were from Galilee. Only Judas Iscariot was from Judea. There were four sets of brothers Among them, It's just interesting. These were all young men, which is kind of cool because you think about it, you know, if you're young and in this room, I got to tell you, like being a young person is the time to say, hey, I'm going to choose to serve the Lord. And these men in their youth pursued the kingdom of God. Their variety is like unbelievable. Like you look at this group of 12 and you're like, really? This is who the Lord brings together to be the foundation of his church and to be his sent ones, apostles. They're like all over the place in terms of where they're at spiritually and what's going on in their personal lives. I always think the best example is that of Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Like if you're going to take two guys and sit them down at a table together, these two couldn't be in, in further extremes from one another. Matthew had sold himself out to Rome. Made his living on the backs of his brothers and sisters in Israel working as a tax collector. Simon, on the other hand, was a zealot, which is a, a religious and political fanatic who was uncompromising in his love for Israel and his hate for Rome. Like, it's like if you take the 12. Between these two men, you cannot find further extremes, but it's amazing they were united in Christ. Don't you love that? How when we come together in Christ, those walls of division break down amongst us. Judas Iscariot was likely the most most cultured, likely the most educated, and he would be the betrayer. There were at least four fishermen in the bunch. Ah, no one seems to be too outstanding in their character. They were young men, they they all have lovable features about them, but they're definitely flawed normal people. I mean, that's what we read in the gospel, and I love this. They were ordinary men, but chosen men. And I love this because it tells us, the word of God is telling us that, that God likes to work with ordinary people. Aren't you glad for that? Ordinary people. He doesn't pick Picasso's. He makes Picassos. Perfect people are not found among his followers. And clearly, God loves a variety of skills and a variety of personalities and a variety of gifts, and he brings us together in his son, Jesus. Now, verse 17, it says this, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Wow, this is amazing, isn't it? It's like just amazing. And people are coming from all over. They want to hear Jesus. They want to touch Jesus. They want to be touched by Jesus. They want to experience his presence and his power and the way God was working in their midst. And we're not going to make our way through this whole chapter this morning, but it's interesting here that Luke gives us what is called by some an abbreviated accounting of the Sermon on the Mount. Or it might be a different occasion. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. I've often referred to this text as the Sermon on the Level Place. Did you catch that when you were reading it? There's a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and there's the Sermon on the Level Place in Luke chapter 6 here. It may be the same instance, might not be. I, I think Jesus taught things more than once. I mean, he didn't have the internet and all these, you know, podcasts and different things. So when he met with different people, he retaught things. And if it's the same instance, scholars say this there's actually not a problem with it being called the Sermon on the Mount. Or the Sermon on the Level Place because the idea of the level places that it can refer to a plateau on a mountainside. So it might be the same occasion, maybe not. But Luke specifies this, that what was taught here in this account was specifically taught to the disciples, not the multitude. So maybe at some point Jesus has taught the multitude here and then he turned from the crowd and he emphasized these things to those who were following him and learning from him, these key things to his disciples. And it's interesting, when you read this, the message focuses in for me on, on a person's attitude, on what ha- what's happening on the inside of you. It's like a contrast here for us of what the Pharisees were like compared to what a disciple is to be like. Pharisees were concerned with the outside. Jesus' disciples were to be concerned with the inside because faith in God has to work from the inside to the outside. Those Pharisees were concerned with outer conformity and Jesus highlighted and he put the spotlight on inner transformation. In fact, you might say this about this sermon that we're about to read, that it is about the key to discovering happiness in life. And happiness in life has to do with your faith in God, your love towards others, being honest with yourself and being obedient towards God. In fact, that'll come up on the screen for you. Happiness and the Sermon on the Level Place. It's about faith in God, loving others, personal honesty and obedience to God. We're gonna just look at the first two points this morning. You know, when you look at the world, the world, and you talk about happiness, the world sells a pretty confusing message about happiness, don't you think that? It's like, oh, they say, yeah, you know, happiness, you got to love yourself, and it starts on the inside of you, but then it says that, and then it preaches a different message, you know, promoting that happiness is about external things, that it's about your possessions, and it's about your experiences. And from Jesus, the message of the kingdom is this, that happiness begins on the inside and true happiness, which is a joy, does not depend upon possessions and experiences. It has a different source. It has a a different wellspring. In fact, when it comes to happiness, if you follow Jesus, I'll have to say this. I mean, Jesus is about to say it, so I'm going to give it away before we read it. If you follow Jesus, you'll probably find this, that you'll be poorer than you would have been if you didn't follow Jesus. You'll actually find this, that Jesus, if you follow Him, will put demands on your time and your talents and your treasure, and you're going to have to give up things for the kingdom of God. If you follow Jesus you'll probably find this, that you are going to carry burdens that you would not have to carry if you just left the kingdom of God. If you follow Jesus, he said it's going to cost you in your relationships, but if you follow Jesus, you will discover the true source of happiness and joy and contentment. One preacher said it this way, Jesus promised his disciples three things. Complete fearlessness, absurd happiness, and constant trouble. <laughs> Isn't that true? Oh, you followed Jesus, all your troubles went away, right? That's what happened for you, not me. See, if you follow him in his kingdom, you will be both poor and you will be rich. You will be both hungry and you will be satisfied. You will both experience sorrow and you will know true Joy. You will be hated, but your future will be secure. Look at verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is men who had already left their occupations to follow Jesus. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for ye shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Say rejoice. And And leap for joy. Say leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Say your reward is great. He says, so your fathers, for so their fathers did to the prophets. You know, I read this and I I think this, I mean, this instruction from Jesus is this follow me until it hurts you. Follow me to the point that it hurts you. It hurts your finances, it hurts your relationships, it affects your hunger, your appetite. Jesus said this and other places, if anyone would come after me, he's gonna to have to pick up his cross daily and follow me. His word is this if you follow me, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna be hard, but you're gonna find happiness. You will find happiness. Jesus said it this way you'll be blessed. Blessed just means this. It means happy. It means you'll be happy. The dictionary defines blessing as God's favor and protection. I love that. Happiness, favor from God, protection from God. You know, if you want to be rich now, if you want to be popular now, if you want a life of ease now, you can have that. Or would you rather, knowing it be hard, Push through, knowing in the end you will inherit eternity. That there are things that lie beyond, that there is future glory. That's what Jesus was putting before the disciples. Look at what he goes on to say here in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep woe to you when people when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets i read this and i think this it's like faith in jesus christ and hearing the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom it has to change your outlook on life it has to change the way you think it has to change your attitude towards This world, it has to change your values and and align your values with another set of values than that with which the world would feed you. A set of values that looks beyond the immediate and the present and is focused on the future. And when you do that, it's amazing what Jesus Christ does for you as he brings his joy and happiness into your life, The, the fear of death leaves. Anxiety about the future becomes not necessary because the future is secure. Happiness and joy, yes. And constant trouble, yes. Faith in Jesus changes everything, doesn't it? And Jesus goes on to say, it'll impact how you get along with other people. Look at this, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Man, I read that I go, wow. God help me. I'm a sinner. It's amazing, you know, Jesus doesn't talk about getting along with people whom you find it easy to do that with. He talks about our enemies. I have to say that apart from the work of God's spirit, this is an absolutely impossible standard, isn't it? It's like every single one of us falls short of this. I mean, any of us can get along with people we like. I mean, that's easy. We like them. Anyone can get along with people who are nice, but those who hate you? those whom you count as enemies, those who mistreat you, those who, as Jesus said, hit you and steal from you, beg from you. And his point is this, that your concern for them, your concern for your enemy will determine whether you have figured out relationships in the kingdom of God or not. Because anyone can love those who love them back. But can we love when it's not reciprocated? So many of the great heroes of the faith did, right? You know, missionaries and great pioneers and different ones that went out and even went so far as to lay down their lives for the kingdom of God. They loved. And certainly that is what Jesus did for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. See, what Jesus is teaching is that you will find true happiness when you place your faith in him and you will find true happiness when you love your enemy. I'll say it like this this morning. Happiness is found, happiness is found when you follow Jesus till it hurts. You know, I read this sermon, this portion of it, we'll, we'll pick up the rest of it next week. And what this message on a, this sermon on a level place, I, w- I would say this, it's, it's not a formula for salvation, that's for certain. This standard is impossible Trying to live to this standard, uh, to please God would leave you totally exasperated and discouraged and disheartened. This message is meant to point us to Christ, to point us to Jesus because our salvation is found in him alone, not in our doing of this message that he taught. Our salvation is found in Him alone, but then when we have found salvation, this message directs us with regards to how we are to live in His kingdom. And the message is this, do it till it hurts. Do it till it hurts, and you will discover true joy. And that is my application for you this morning, the Spirit of God's application. I got one, follow Jesus till it hurts. Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Jesus, we just uh, come before you this morning and we confess, we confess, Jesus, that your standards of righteousness are too high for us. Lord, we're weighed against you and against your word and it is obvious and apparent to us that we fall short of the glory of God. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you came. You came, Jesus, to pay our penalty, to take our place, to be in our stead, and to bear the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. And Jesus, this morning, we just confess, we put our hope and our trust in you, Jesus. We confess your Lord. Jesus, what what is my righteousness but filth and rags? Lord, you call us to faith. You call us to love our enemies. You call us to be honest with ourselves, Jesus. You call us to do do it until it hurts. So Jesus, would you help us be men and women who pick up our cross and follow you daily? Lord, we wanna follow you Because we've discovered that in you is true life, is true joy, is true happiness, is true blessing. You are the wellspring of life, Jesus. We confess it. We give you our glory and our praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.